When you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you picture the roaring 20s and gangsters like Al Capone? Maybe you think of drug prohibition, gambling, sex work, or age restrictions on tobacco. Maybe you consider the migrants who are forbidden from crossing international borders. Whatever comes to mind, you probably know that various forms of prohibition are embedded into the fabric of our society, and if you're like most people, you don't think it's working. I'm Scott Cecil, the host of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. On this show, I explore the impacts of prohibition by interviewing those who are working to dismantle, create, or maintain its various forms. This is Prohibited. Hello, and welcome to Prohibited. I'm very excited about this episode because this is our first episode which is explicitly about gaming or gambling. I sat down with Lynn McNally and Lance Morgan, both of whom are affiliated with the Ballot Initiative campaigns to bring gaming and gambling to six sites in the state of Nebraska, which already have racetracks for horse racing. We discussed the roller coaster campaign to gather signatures during the COVID-19 pandemic and how they adjusted to that, We also go into the politics of the opposition to the initiatives, which includes racist, anti-Indigenous fear-mongering and direct interference from the state's governor and secretary of state. So without further ado, let's get straight to the interview. We have Lynn McNally. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me on Prohibited. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we've also got Lance Morgan joining us on the show. Lance, pleasure to have you on the show. Glad to be here. And where are you both uh, calling us us from today? I'm in South Sioux City, Nebraska at the moment. Lincoln, Nebraska. Awesome. And listeners of the show know that I'm a Nebraska native, so I'm really excited to have you both here. We are, at the time of this recording, we're about nine days out from Election Day. So I know you two are very, very busy right now, and I just really appreciate you giving the time to our audience to join us for this episode. Uh, I did give the listeners a brief sort of uh, introduction about the ballot initiatives during the lead into the show, and I'll give you the opportunity to talk about the initiatives um, and what's included in them. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what a roller coaster, really, it's been for, for you guys for the campaign in 2020 legally speaking. So listeners of the show will remember our recent episode with John Cartier and State Senator Anna Wishart, who were part of the ballot initiative campaign to legalize medical cannabis in the state of Nebraska. Listeners will remember that despite having collected enough signatures to appear on the ballot, the Nebraska State Supreme Court blocked the initiative from appearing, saying that it violated the single subject rule. So you both heard that episode, you reached out to me, and so here we are. And your initiatives had uh, sort of an up and down journey, too. And I just wanted to start there before we get to the specifics about what you're trying to accomplish with the campaign. So earlier this summer, as I understand it, the Nebraska Secretary of State blocked your initiatives from appearing on the, the ballot, saying that they violated state law. And that was the reason. But then the state Supreme Court stepped in and upheld the initiative's ability to appear on the ballot. So, Lynn, I think I'll start with you. What can you tell our listeners about that whole series of events 
how did things play out the way they did? And and where have we landed uh, this close to the election? Well, everything was kind of panic inducing in this measure from start to finish. Um, We've actually been working with Ho-Chunk on this for five years. Uh, We had a previous measure that did not get enough signatures. And so we tried it again. And we had been collecting signatures starting last summer. We actually submitted the language to the Secretary of State in May of 2019, got approval to get the um, the signature collection sheets printed. Everything was good to go. Collected signatures all through the fall. Uh, we decided to stop collecting because it was heading towards December. And as you know, as a former resident of Nebraska, it gets a little chilly here. So we were thinking that, you know, large scale gatherings would be difficult to collect signatures. So we had enough signatures, we had enough cushion that we would pick it up in the spring and everything would be fine. Well, you know what happened there. So so, uh, we were in um, May deciding what to do and decided that the only option would be just to collect signatures with the appropriate social distancing we bought. I think we ended up buying 50,000 individually wrapped pens and and people took the pens with them so that no one used the same pen. It was very difficult, but we ended up getting 475,000 signatures across the three measures, which was well above what we needed to collect. So we were very confident, feeling really good. Um, The procedure in Nebraska to do this is that they send the signatures per county to all 93 counties. The counties report back an initial count. Once that count is completed, then the Secretary of State asks them to certify that number. It's self-actualizing, meaning that when the 93rd County reports back, you're automatically certified to be on the ballot. So that's how that usually works. What happened in this case was that somehow, some way, when there were two counties left to report, um, Two complaints were received within minutes of each other at the Secretary of State's office, objecting to us being placed on the ballot, saying that um, we violated the single subject rule. Despite the fact that the Secretary of State had to approve our language in form and function back in May of 2019, he decided to take two weeks, really, and let us know that he did agree that we violated the single subject and he would not be allowing us to be on the ballot despite the fact that we had more than enough signatures. So at that point, we were really boxed in. We didn't know what to do because uh, at that point, there was no possible way because of the timing that we could work our way through the court system and go to the Supreme Court and get a decision in time to still make the ballot. Uh, September 11th was the deadline to have a definitive answer so that we could be certified to be on the ballot. So our only option was to get what's called a writ of mandamus. So our attorney applied for that with the Supreme Court. That means that you can bypass all other courts, go directly to the Supreme Court and get a decision from them. Um, They gave us leave to be heard there. And um, the court decided four to three in our favor. So uh, despite this, the Secretary of State's objections, they placed all three of the measures on the ballot. So that's where we are today. 
Thank you so much for the detailed background. Uh, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I can tell that you really know what you're doing. And I just appreciate you being there to advocate for people there in our home state. Lance, I want to get you in here. But before I do, you mentioned that there were 475,000 signatures that you and your volunteers gathered across the three initiatives. That might not sound like a, a large number, but I want to point out for listeners, the population of the entire state of Nebraska is only about 1.8, 1.9 million people. So to gather half a million signatures, even with its with the three initiatives being counted in that, is really a huge undertaking. And I know you had to do it in dozens and dozens of counties all across the state. So just really well done, especially, as you mentioned, under difficult circumstances being in the pandemic. Thank you. And just to remind you, those had to be registered voters and I think there are approximately 980,000 registered voters in the state. I was joking that um, the pandemic threw us into a panic, you know, to, in order to get the signatures in time. It really was a struggle. I know it was a huge undertaking. And yeah, it sounds like you you got about half the, the registered voters in the state to sign the initiative, which seems like a good sign. So Lance, before we talk about the specifics of the initiative, I want to ask you about Ho-Chunk. So I know that you are a member of the Winnebago tribe. I know that you are the president and CEO of Ho-Chunk and that that business entity is related to the ballot initiative effort in some way. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about what Ho-Chunk Incorporated is and just how that relates to this ballot initiative effort? Yeah, well, Ho-Chunk is, is funding um, the, the initiative effort, uh, and, and we, own one, we also own one of the, the, the horse tracks here in, in Nebraska, and we've partnered with the other horse tracks to form Keep the Money in Nebraska is the name of our organization that's pushing this. Um, but Ho-Chunk Inc. itself, we're about 25, we're a 25-year-old company, um, started my apartment in, um, a long time ago. And I think we have a, we have a little over 1,500 employees and several hundred million a year in revenue. And what's unique, about it's it's not a gaming company per se, although we do on a horse track. What's unique about it is that it's owned by the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska. And it was started with some proceeds from the tribe's original casino back in the early 90s. And competition came in, ironically, from the Iowa casinos, who are we who we would compete with now. And um, that really hurt the tribe's because, you know, we laid off 300 people, our profits dropped by 80, 90 percent overnight. And the tribe could see these bills being built and knew it was coming. So they took some of the money they had made initially and started the company called Ho-Chunk Inc. And um, that's what's grown up into uh, really a, we do a lot of stuff all over the world and the country. But we're a major employer here in our corner of the world. And so we're just a company that does lots of different things. So, Lynn, I want to give you an opportunity to describe the three ballot initiatives. So if I understand everything correctly, there are three separate initiatives rather than simply one initiative because of that single subject rule that we're worried about with the Nebraska State Supreme Court. Am I right about that? And if so, or if I'm not, tell me that I'm not. But if so, why three different initiatives and what is contained in each one? You're absolutely correct. We have a very odd provision in, in Nebraska law that says that you can only have one subject in each petition. That has been a moving target. It's been very difficult to even identify what they mean by that. And it's the most um, heavily litigated issue relating to petitions in the state of Nebraska. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably the only issue. Um, the three measures are very simple. Uh, the first measure says that games of chance are allowed within racetrack enclosures. Games of chance means roulette, Baccarat, poker, um, blackjack, 
slot machines, those types of things. The second measure is Initiative 430, and that would be the regulatory component. It expands the current Racing Commission from five members to seven, and it would be the Racing and Gaming Commission. Those individuals would be the ones that would actually issue the gaming licenses, and it would cost a million dollars just to apply for the license. You would, al you would already have to have a racing license in order to apply for a gaming license. It's a precondition. Initiative 431 is a taxation component. 20% of gross gaming revenues will um, be paid in taxes. 70% of that money will go to the property tax relief fund and the Nebraska legislature has already authorized that. Uh, they had LB 1107 in August of this year and basically provided the mechanism for us to remit that money to the property tax relief fund. 25% of the money will go to the cities and counties where these facilities are located. 2.5% will go to the Compulsive Gamblers Assistance Fund, and the remaining 2.5% will just go into the general fund that the legislature, legislature can spend how they want. Lance, anything you want to add to that? No, I just want to go back to the previous question. You know, we had half the registered voters, you know, <laughs> sign this, and then, you know, it was very much a politically orchestrated thing where a couple of people write a letter of complaint, and the Secretary of State dusted off a power that no one knew he had, you know, if you look at sort of a technical reading and, and no secretary of state ever used to, to just sort of by fiat, writing the letter and wiping us off, tried to wipe us off the ballot. You know, it's, um, you know, it, it really was sort of an effort in political manipulation and power play. And so I'm glad that the court stepped into it and, and did it. You know, interestingly, they did the he did the exact opposite. The secretary of state did the exact opposite and, and put it on the ballot. Um, with 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 the marijuana initiative, and so um, and and then that got overturned by the court, and then his actions, you know, to take us off got overturned. So <laughs> he's over two, you know, in, in terms of, of of applying his powers. And so I think that that's something that needs to be revisited. So if you can just personally decide to wipe out four hundred seventy five thousand signatures, something's wrong with that in a democracy. Yeah, I agree with. The thing about this is that. It's state law that we're required to have when you have an initiative that's on the ballot, you must have a public hearing in each of the three congressional districts so that the public can weigh in on the initiatives. The, the theory is that the typical route is that when you have a bill, a senator introduces it in a committee for the legislature. If it passes out of the committee, then it goes to the floor for consideration. The public didn't have a chance to weigh in. And so that's the purpose of them. You know, that the, the ironic thing is that the Secretary of State is supposed to be the neutral arbiter of these hearings. He's supposed to conduct them impartially, take testimony, and that's it. All three hearings before uh, before they started, he was giving interviews about how, you know, Indian casinos are going to be everywhere. Uh, we're lying about what we're presenting. It was very bizarre. And um, at the first hearing, I actually overheard him saying this to a reporter. So, I walked down and just stood there and the reporter stopped and he stopped and, and he said, you know, can I help you? Who are you? And I said, I'm the plaintiff. And I just stood there and he said, oh, 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 well, um, you won. Congratulations. And then suddenly he had to go conduct the hearing and couldn't talk anymore. I just thought that was very odd. But, you know, um, despite the fact that we've got the governor and other state officials that have been solidly against us from the beginning, I think we're doing quite well. And I guess we'll find out how well we're doing in uh, nine days.
Yeah, I'd like to add something. The, um, you know, the fact that I run a corporation that's owned by an Indian tribe is just sort of incidental to this. Um, you know, we, you know, 90% of our business activity occurs in, you know, uh, off the reservation. We're just a company who has a unique ownership structure and our profits tend to go to like doing good things. So it makes us a little bit unique. And, you know, our polling show overwhelming support for what we're doing, but our opponents were doing a poll and they kept asking about the Indian Indian ownership issue. And they realized what we already know is that people were going to support this, but they decided to play on the tribal ownership aspect of it to confuse voters. And they've put out mailers and commercials that said there's going to be an Indian casino in every county next to churches and schools. And and to, to play the race card at this stage in 2020 is just sort of amazing to me. And, and a lot of our political leaders in this state are paying for this, paying for some of this anti-gaming um, um, ads, which I get. I guess I respect it. But to throw in a tribal element to it as if we're somehow coming, you know, and uh, uh, it really was uh, disturbing and, um, and wrong. One of the things that confuses me about the opposition that you get is that, in, in my opinion— the, the law that you're proposing is is pretty restrictive. I mean, there are only a handful of sites where um, this type of gaming would be able to take place. There already is gaming in some form happening in the state. So I'm curious to know, it sounds like a lot of what your opposition is saying is just wrong, right? So I'm curious to know, beyond the things that they're saying that are just wrong, so one, like the fear-mongering around uh, Indian ownership and uh, the fear-mongering around the number of, you know, casinos that are going to be near every church and in every community and that and so forth. Are there any objective arguments that they're making against the initiative that are things that you that you think actually do get traction with voters? That uh, I'm, I'm just wondering if there's anything that they're putting forward that makes sense, or is all of the opposition just based on lies and fear-mongering? Well, I think that in most of these things, they have they take some sort of shred of truth and try to blow it up into something. And right, and when we when we we've been working on this for a long time, and people didn't want like a casino on every corner. You know, you can go to South Dakota, you can have little casinos in every gas station. And so we were trying to think about, you know, um, uh, how how it would be limited. And the horse tracks themselves, there are six of them, and they're in natural places where they should be in Nebraska, based on sort of population and density. Um, there's some possibility that you could add more, but you really, it's not viable. It's not viable to spend that kind of capital in a town of like 200 people or something. And so, um, so it is a pretty limited, it is a pretty limited group, although there is some possibility for expansion. As far as the tribal uh, casino aspect goes, there are three um, small tribal casinos, each, uh, four maybe, I suppose, in Nebraska. And they're in, one is on the highway in the middle of nowhere, and the other one's in a town of 800, 600, and 2,000 people. So the proliferation argument is ridiculous in that regard. And Nebraska has basically ignored our ability to expand those casinos for 28 years. You know, they have they have the right to sort of blow us off, and they've been they've been great about doing that and consistent. And um, as far as our ability to buy land and take, turn it into tribal status all around the state, that's ridiculous. And if we could do that, I can assure you, we'd have done that already. <laughs> you know, but. You know, this, those are the kind of things that the local government has to approve. And those are the kind of things that the governor has to sign off on expanded gaming. And so none of that will ever happen. But having a complicated argument about how federal law interplays with state law and tribal law is not how you run a 30-second commercial. And so they're just saying <laughs> it's, it's an absolute impossibility. 
and uh, and they know that, but they they continue to, to push that that lie. I want to give a, additional context to our listeners too. You know, I can remember as a little kid. I'm not exactly one of you will probably know. I'm not exactly sure how old I was when some of the large, big casinos started opening up in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a city of about half a million people. It's by far the largest city in Nebraska. It's right on the eastern edge, on the Missouri River. Across the river is Council Bluffs, Iowa, which is a much, much, much smaller town. I think maybe 50,000 people, something somewhere around there, certainly less than 100,000, or excuse me, fewer, certainly fewer than 100,000. But they have, the last time I was there, I think three casinos, maybe four. And to your point about needing to have a certain size community to be able to even support one casino, those casinos are only there because the folks who want to do gaming and do specific type of point of, point of person gaming and gambling they just drive over from Omaha into Council Bluffs. And so one of the things that always got me, you know, once I got to voting age and started voting in Nebraska, it seemed like every two years, every four years, there would be a, a ballot initiative related to gambling in some form, and it would always lose. And I was always confused why people, even if you didn't think that gambling was was a morally good thing or you had any other reason to oppose it, if for no other practical reason... It was very clear to those of us who lived in Omaha how much tax revenue we were simply throwing across the river for for absolutely no reason. I can remember seeing um, not just casinos being built in Council Bluffs, but a new aqueduct and new libraries and school upgrades and just things that were being paid for by this tax revenue that our state was losing out on. So you mentioned South Dakota. Are there other states bordering Nebraska that also have legalized gambling? And is there... Has that dynamic between Iowa and Nebraska, is that present with some of our other neighbors? Um, I'll answer it, and Lynn, you can chime in too. But um, every state that touches Nebraska has some form of gaming. And I think that um, 70%, I believe is a statistic, live within 60 or 70 miles of, of a casino of Nebraskans. Um, in Omaha in particular, since those gaming operations have opened, um, $9 billion has gone from Nebraska to those to those three casinos in Iowa, nine billion, and it, the total leakage is about four hundred million dollars a year from Nebraska, various other states, and so uh, you you really got an you really got a big problem there. And um, I have a place in Omaha, and if you look out my window, you can see two of the three casinos, and you can't see the third one because it's behind one of those. <laughs> and so <laughs> the river does not act as any sort of impediment. For, for Nebraskans to go over there. And I've noticed the same thing, that Council Bluffs is, is really a, a, a blue-collar city and it struggles, I think, with some poverty issues. But they've been able to take money from Omaha, which is a much wealthier city, and put it into their community and do all kinds of things at sort of the expense of, of Omaha. And um, so I think it doesn't, a lot of it just doesn't make sense to people who live in Omaha. And you can make a moral argument, and I guess I respect that, and it's 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 worked to some extent here. But there's certainly no economic argument against expanded gaming because it, it's absolutely obvious, you know, where the money is coming from. It's 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 a tax from Nebraska to Iowa, and it doesn't make any sense. The other thing that they've been arguing, and they've been arguing this for a long time. I, I've been actually working on this particular issue for 20 years, and they've trotted out this old statistic that's been discredited that for every dollar that's raised, there are $3 in social costs. Well, as Lance said, $9 billion with a B has gone across the river to Iowa. 
So I, I really don't think it's possible that there are $27 billion of social costs that have arisen in Nebraska because of that, because those are Nebraska dollars, make no mistake. Uh, the casinos do extensive research on where their customers come from, and 85% approximately come from Omaha and the surrounding area to those Council Bluffs casinos. So if you really believe that, that the social costs are outweigh the benefits, we already have the social costs without any of the benefits. We're just trying to keep the money here in Nebraska so that we can utilize that revenue, keep it in the state and, and regenerate it um, for years to come. If, if this is legalized, um, my organization owns the racetracks in Omaha and Lincoln. We are contracting with a Nebraska company to build and manage these casinos. They're, they're Nebraska companies, they will stay here. We're a Nebraska company, we're a nonprofit. So the, the money will be regenerated and turned over many, many times in those communities. So we're very confident that not only are they wrong about the social costs, but that we can keep the money here and have everybody prosper here in the state instead of sending it out of state for once. I just the Winnebago tribe's arrival predates the formation of the state. So <laughs> by quite a bit. And so, yeah, I guess we could be a Nebraska company too, but, but <laughs> the, uh, I once had a, the mayor of Omaha or one of the towns nearby, we were building some asked if, if, if we were really going to make a long-term commitment to these investments and whether we'd stay. I said, we've been wondering the same thing ourselves for a very long time, <laughs> whether or not you guys were going to stay. And he thought that was funny. But um, one, one of the things that I think that's worth pointing out in this is that our governor um, has put in all kinds of money to stop this effort on a moralistic ground. And he's, his family became wealthy from um, TD Ameritrade, which is basically a stock market, which is always a little bit of a gamble. I've joked to the past, I've lost way more money in my TD Ameritrade account than I ever did at a casino. And um, the other thing about it, his family owns the Chicago Cubs, and they just entered into agreement with DraftKings to put in the largest sports uh, betting operation in the country. And so it, it's very hard to be judged <laughs> by, you know, by somebody who's probably more like a competitor, uh, yeah, than 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 sort of the moral equivalent of, of a do-gooder, and so it, it is an interesting dynamic that we're facing here, and and there's they're being a little bit hypocritical, I think, it's the opposition is. I I just had a I just watched a podcast or like a live press conference, and it was members of the I think it was the Catholic Church, and they were all against uh, gaming, and somebody commented on it, and I just wrote on the comments, bingo. <laughs> you know, because that's why I first learned to do uh, gaming was in the basement of the church. <laughs> so it's all sort of hypocritical and ironic what's going on here. You know, but that's the era we're in right now. You're absolutely right, and you're. I think you're being nicer to the governor than I would. And for listeners, Lance is referring to Nebraska's current governor, Pete Ricketts, and the Ricketts family, who, as he mentioned, owned the Chicago Cubs and are, um, I think, known to be large. Uh, Republican donors and um, including to President Trump. So uh, that might give you an idea of, um, of of who some of these these folks are that are in opposition. So um, I wanted to give you both the opportunity to say anything else you would like uh, voters to know and supporters that are outside of the state to know. H how can we support the campaign? So obviously, for listeners inside of the state of Nebraska, hopefully you are already registered to vote. Please vote yes on the initiatives. Um, what should those of us who live outside of Nebraska be doing to help support you during this home stretch? 
I think the the main thing is, you know, we've we've got an active presence on social media, that kind of thing. If you're out of state and you, and you can't vote on this measure, just um, commenting on our Facebook page or Twitter or anything else like that would be very, very helpful. If you live in the state and you can vote, please vote for all three. They work cooperatively together. Um, Initiative 429 has to pass because it's a constitutional amendment. And if that doesn't pass, the other two measures um, can't take effect. But the problem is if you only vote for 429, then you leave the tax rate and how to spend it totally up to the legislature. And I'm not sure how many people want to do that. So please vote for all three, 429, 430, and 431. I think it's important to mention that on our Facebook um, and Twitter and I don't know, social media presence is called Keep the Money in Nebraska. And so if, if you want to see what's going on, you can you know, hop on there and catch up to everything pretty quickly. Lynn, Lance, I always close every interview with the following question. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about today that you wanted to talk about while you were here on Prohibited? Lynn, I'll go to you first, and then Lance, why don't you close us out? Well, first of all, I would like to mention that despite what our opposition says, um, Native Americans do pay taxes. <laughs> that, that was, that's one of their uh, assertions is that when these open um, initiative 430 is a red herring and, and we won't actually be paying taxes at these facilities. Not true. We'll be paying substantial taxes. And actually, if this passes, uh, the casinos will be the, depending on if you count off it, will be either the third or fourth largest employer in the state of Nebraska. So we're excited about that. Yeah, I, th- I think if the only thing I would add is that, you know, being a company that predates Nebraska in Nebraska um, and that's owned by a tribe that we have our entire mission and goal is to reinvest the money back into our own community. You know, a lot of times in America, you have these companies that come in and they take and we're, we don't we don't just what we do is we create economic activity and re- reinvest it over and over again. And we do it with we do high quality things. And then a portion of our money goes back into our own tribal community, which was really one of the poorest uh, uh, communities in the state of Nebraska. And we've done a lot to bring it up out of poverty and putting people to work. And we actually built our own town the Ho-Chunk Village um, and from scratch where we had high quality living. And so this isn't uh, somebody putting uh, money in their own pocket. This is a reinvestment corporation that is sort of a corporation with a little hint of socialism thrown in. And, and that is our mindset. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous, uh, the gall that colonizers have on stolen land sometimes. And I just appreciate you um, just still being a person of such high spirits. Um, and, you know, it's been fun interviewing you today. And I just appreciate your your approach to this, both of you. So Lynn McNally and Lance Morgan, thank you so much for joining me on Prohibited. Best of luck with the rest of the campaign. Thank you. Thank, let me let me add something. Um, Please. Uh, you can get indignant. But it doesn't do you much good when when people are offensive, you know, when it comes to tribal issues and things like that. What we're trying to do is really just just beat them at their own game and co-opt the system. You know, our lack of economic power was what's allowed them to ignore us. And so Ho-Chunk Inc. will have 300 and some million dollars this year in revenue. And we're one of the largest employers in our region of the state. And um, if we if we get this gaming activity, we'll be probably the second or third largest employer in the state. And so at some point, we're not going to be easy to make fun of or pick on or take or take our stuff. And so that's that's what we're we're going to co-opt that system for our own purposes, hopefully in the end. Was a Facebook comment yesterday, as a matter of fact, that 
one of the uh, people who was criticizing the measure said, well, these racetracks better watch out because if they've contracted with Ho-Chunk to manage their casino, they're going to come in and they're, and they're going to take the facility and there's nothing that the horseman can do about it. So I called my boss, Bob Moser, who's the president of my company, and he said, well, I guess turnabout would be fair play, wouldn't it? <laughs> this, this, is, this is definitely an instance where the cowboys and Indians are cooperating together. <laughs> well, hey, as, uh, as a Nebraska native, I, I love being, being from Nebraska. I'm so proud to be born there. I love the state. And um, I think the, the wonderful nature of Nebraskans, I think, came through in this interview with both of you. So I just really appreciate you both being here. It's been my honor. This was a lot of fun. And I'm wishing you the best of luck in the last week of the campaign. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. Our editor is Chris Harris. Our music is by KCAP. Our webmaster is Ricardo Amaya. And I'm your host, Scott Cecil. If you enjoyed this show, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash prohibited and share it with your friends and family. This podcast is a production of Prohibited Media. You can find a full archive of our episodes at our website at prohibitedpodcast.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, be sure to leave a rating and a review. It helps new listeners find us. If you have ideas or feedback for the show, feel free to send us an email at prohibitedpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, no matter how prohibition impacts your life and the lives of those around you, You're still free to think for yourself, and we hope we've given you something to think about today. We hope you enjoyed the show, and see you next time.